Six months ago, our family was in Chicago for a funeral. Uh, the man who had died, whose funeral it was, his name was Ross Stern, and he had lost a long and ugly battle with cancer. He was a, a believer, a, a solid man. He'd been an elder in his church. It was a good church. Um, he had, uh, had raised a family. He had three boys. Uh, and one of those boys was a good friend of mine. His name was Matt. And Matt and his wife Anna were two of the best friends that we had during our time in Louisville. Well, they're still our friends, so we still have them. But, um, but it was so, so they become good friends of ours. So it was out of you know, love and wanting to support them that we went to this funeral. Having only met Matt's dad once, um, and so we, we went to this funeral to, to support them. And about two years prior to this funeral, uh, Matt's family had also buried his mom, who had also lost a long and ugly battle with cancer. And she, too, by all accounts, was a, a very godly person. She was a great mom, um, a godly woman. We heard lots of, we've heard lots of testimonies uh, about her. And... Uh, and so here were two uh, believers who, who died young, relatively young. And we, we haven't necessarily all faced uh, situations that dramatic where we're burying two parents before we're even out of our mid-20s. Um, but we've all had to deal with death. Death is, de- and dealing with death, is a part of life for everybody. And Christians, while we have a great hope, and we're going to talk about that today, uh, it doesn't mean we get to uh, completely avoid uh, the issue of death. Uh, Ten out of ten people still die. That's true for us as it is for everyone. And the Thessalonians, they also faced death. They faced the death of other believers. Other Christians in their church had died. And some questions arose, evidently, uh, in their church about what this meant for their loved ones who had died, particularly when it comes to Christ's return. Do these loved ones miss out? Uh, how does this work? And, what, and, and such confusion, when you're confused over that, you can imagine then how that complicates the grieving process. Right? It makes it much harder if we don't know what, how things are going to play out. And we're lost. We don't know. And so... Paul gives some instructions to them on the return of Christ and on the resurrection of believers. And I just want to notice, just from the start, and we'll see this as we, as we go through it and get into it, but what I want to point out right, right off the bat is that Paul's concern in these verses is primarily a pastoral concern. And what I mean by that is he's, he wants to comfort these hurting people. These people are grieving loss, and they lack some uh, knowledge and uh, doctrine that will help them to grieve well, and that's his, his concern, and that's why he's writing these verses. So he's not engaging in, you know, an idle speculation about the end, uh, nor is his point to answer every possible question we might have about how things are going to play out at the end, about end times. Rather, again, he's trying to give them uh, truth and enough truth to help them to grieve well. So sometimes when we get into 
you know, end times, we, we, we want to uh, break out the charts and all that. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. We ought to try to understand what the whole Bible says about the subject. Uh, and yet, we piece it together from documents and, and from verses like this, like we're about to read, uh, where Paul is dealing with a specific situation and he's not trying to lay out every single thing. So primarily, um, he is, he is, he is uh, writing to help these people. His concern is a pastoral one. If you have not had to deal with death, then you simply haven't lived long enough. And as we look at this issue of death, and particularly mourning the death of believers today, we're not trying to be morbid, uh, we're not trying to be twisted or have some weird fascination with, with death or be discouraging. It's quite to the, to the contrary. It's better to prepare now while you're not having to deal with it so that when it happens, not if, but when it happens, you will have something to fall back on. Rather than in the moment suddenly grasping for categories to try to make sense of what it is you're feeling and, and this grief you have. And that's what's happening to the Thessalonians, and Paul's trying to help them with that. And we can learn from this. And even if you're not, you're sitting there and you're not currently dealing with uh, the death of a, of a loved one or of another believer that's close to you, uh, don't check out. This is an opportunity for us to, um, to get solid on this so that when it comes... Uh, we are prepared, as, w- as prepared as we can be. So as we come to uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, we're going to go down to the end of the chapter, verse 18. We are going to look at how a faithful church grieves with hope in the face of death. How a faithful church, faithful believers will grieve with hope in the face of death. So here's the outline quickly. Uh, I'll give it to you up front where we're going. Uh, When believers you love die, take comfort in the reality of a future resurrection, the reality that no believer will miss out on the resurrection, and the reality that all believers will spend eternity forever with the victorious Lord. So that's where we're going. So, So number one, when believers die... Take comfort in the reality of a future resurrection. Let's read verses 13 and 14. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So here Paul begins to address uh, uh, another situation that has come to his attention from the Thessalonians. So there's a little bit of a shift from what we were looking at last week. Uh, He uses a a normal expression to to signal this shift that we find a few places in Paul where he says, I do not want you to be uninformed about, and then he lays out what it is he he doesn't want them to be uninformed about. So, So what is it? Why is it they're uninformed on this point of what happens at the end? Well, Likely, it's because Paul was, was with them for probably only a few short months before he was forced out of Thessalonica. So if you go to Acts 17, you can read that, um, where, the, where he was in Thessalonica and the church founded. And then he had to leave because there was this uh, opposition stirred up against him. So 
in all likelihood, he just never got to complete uh, the teaching on this. In chapter 3, verse 10, we saw that uh, Paul wanted to go back and supply what was lacking in their faith. So he wanted to do some more teaching for them. And it's evident at the beginning of chapter 5, even though they lack some knowledge, the beginning of chapter 5, the first two verses, uh, Paul did do some teaching about the return of the Lord when he was with them. They did have some knowledge of this. So the return of Christ, it's not an incidental part of the gospel. It's not an incidental part of Scripture that Christ is going to return. It's important enough that within the first couple months of being there and of teaching the Scriptures to the Thessalonians, Paul had addressed it, at least in part. So he does so again here. He does not want them to be ignorant about this and specifically says about those who are asleep. Those who are asleep. This term, uh, asleep, was commonly used. Uh, it's commonly used throughout the Bible, but also in Greek and Latin literature and in inscriptions that have been found as a synonym for death, for those who are dead. Some try to argue because this word is, because the word sleep asleep is being used. Some tried to argue that it refers to, uh, to soul sleep. So it's the idea that when uh, a believer dies, a person dies, their soul just remains asleep and there's nothing until Christ returns and then they are raised. But that's not what, that's not what this term is applying. It's a simple synonym for death. It's used that way in the Bible, it's used that way outside of the Bible to those who didn't have a Christian understanding of resurrection. It's just a, a basic synonym for death. And even I would say in verse 16, if you jump ahead, he's going to reference the same group of people, those who have fallen asleep. He refers to them as the dead in Christ. So that's, that's what that term means. Um, so what was uh, the concern? What were the Thessalonians concerned about? Well, it's, again, likely that their concern was that only those who were left alive when Jesus returned would be able to see it and participate in it and be part of that great day. And so there was some misunderstanding or some lack of knowledge that Paul here sets out to correct. And Paul addresses the issue. He says, so that, or with the purpose that, they'll not grieve as those who have no hope, that they'll not grieve as unbelievers do who don't have a hope. Now, unbelievers, they might have some sense of an afterlife. Um, they might be putting their, their blind hope in, in something, but they have no sure hope, no certain hope. And, and certainly that's true in our world today. Um, I mean, the secular worldview is just empty, void of meaning, if, if they're consistent. If we come from nothing, there's no purpose, we, we go to nothing. So when somebody dies, that's it, there's no hope. They die young, it's tragic, but what do you do? Uh, so goes the life cycle. There's, there's, it's hopeless. It's a hopelessness. And that's not how Paul wants us to grieve. That's not how the Lord would have us grieve. Notice, though, that he says, he, he, he does, notice he doesn't tell them not to mourn, right? He doesn't say don't mourn. He just wants them not to mourn like people who don't have hope. So Paul is not callous about it. Uh, he's not saying, oh, you know, you're going to see him again. Well, you know, get over it. It's don't, don't mourn it. There's, there's still a mourning process that takes place, but it should be 
uh, influenced by our understanding that Paul's going to lay out of uh, the resurrection. So we will mourn, but not in a hopeless manner. So that's, that's the issue, that's the problem. And then in verse 14, Paul begins to explain why it is that they should have hope. And Paul argues, he's making the case here that Jesus' death and resurrection is the guarantee that believers also will experience a resurrection. And this is the great hope for those who've died in Christ. So he says, for since or because we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, or in this way, God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. Uh, he says there, because we believe, that, that phrase, we believe Jesus died and rose again, uh, some think that's an early uh, creed, an early creedal statement uh, that precedes Paul. That would be kind of a, a confession that the church would have had that Paul's referencing. Um, that's very possible. The, the word Paul uses for uh, Jesus uh, rising again is not the normal word he uses for resurrection, which just could mean that this phrase uh, predates Paul and he uses it because that's part of their creed. That's, that's certainly possible. Regardless, Paul is making an implication from what they believe about the gospel, that Jesus died and rose again, an implication about how it is they are going to mourn, how they should mourn. Because Jesus rose again, in this way, those who die in Christ will likewise come with him at his return and receive resurrected bodies. The resurrection of Christ assures the resurrection of believers, of those who are in him. There's a phrase here in the ESV, if you are following along in the ESV, uh, in the middle there it says, through Jesus, on verse 14, for since we believe Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him. Um, so that seems to indicate the way that's translated, that Jesus is the agent by whom or through whom uh, God will bring the people. Uh, however, if you have an NASB or perhaps an NIV in front of you, you'll see that that phrase is moved to the end of the verse, and it's translated as those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And I think that's a better translation, though getting into all the details, but uh, it, it, it fits better with the position of the phrase in the, the Greek, and it also, uh, in terms of what it means to, be, to fall asleep in Christ, in Jesus, uh, it, it becomes a synonym for verse 16, where he talks about the dead in Christ, those who are in Christ. So what Paul's saying then is that those who die in Christ, that is, united to Christ by faith in him, will be brought with Jesus at his coming. So Paul's saying here that a dead believer cannot miss out on the final events because Jesus rose again, and that assures they too will rise again. All believers must necessarily be raised again because Jesus was raised. And so throughout the New Testament, we see this over and over. We're taught that Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Our, the resurrection of believers uh, is, is often side by side with Christ's resurrection. So we read earlier from 1 Corinthians 15, 12, um, there, Paul writes, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? 
But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So here uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul uh, makes this connection between Jesus' resurrection and the re- resurrection of believers. Very clear. If we deny that believers will be raised, then that means Jesus was not raised. That's what Paul says there. And then that undermines the entirety of Christianity. (laughs) If Christ has not been raised, we're still in our sins. We're all wasting our time by being here. Uh, So there's the connection between Christ's raised, therefore we will be raised. Uh, Acts 26-23, when Paul is testifying before Agrippa, he says that Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both to our people and to the Gentiles. So Jesus' resurrection is the first. He's the first to rise from the dead, which implies his people will one day rise as well. In Colossians 1.28, Paul uh, refers to Jesus as the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the dead. Again, implying that his people will also be raised from the dead. Uh, this, and, and elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 6.14, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. 2 Corinthians 4.14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. So the two are linked, the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of his people. Of course, the Bible also teaches about the resurrection of those who die outside of Christ, how they will be raised as well to face judgment. But here, specifically in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul is talking about believers. He's talking about those who've died in Christ, those who have faith in him and die in that condition. And so the doctrine of the resurrection, it's not a secondary doctrine. Whether we're talking about Christ's resurrection or whether we're talking about the resurrection of believers at the end, it's not a secondary matter. We are coming to a season of Easter, the Easter season, where everywhere you turn, there's going to be assaults on the resurrection of Christ. And that's just par for the course. Uh, but that's not, a, that's not a, a something we can just concede. That's not ground we want to just give on. Um, we need to engage that. Uh, because if that were true, if Christ were not raised, then as we've seen, um, this is all for naught. And so it's not an incidental, it's not a secondary doctrine. So I would ask you, do you believe it? If we're not raised, Christ wasn't raised. If he wasn't raised, again, this is all vain. But of course, as Christians, as believers, if we are trusting in the word of God, then we do believe that Christ was raised from the dead. And so we are called to take comfort knowing that the one who first rose from the dead will also bring us with him, that he too will raise us from the dead, that because we are in him by faith, we will one day be raised. And so we grieve not without hope, but taking comfort in the reality of the resurrection to come. Jesus rose bodily. Believers, too, will rise bodily. This is not merely a spiritual or a metaphorical resurrection of sorts. 
We see in the New Testament, Jesus' body was a little different, but it was still, there was still physical, uh, a physical side to it. He could be touched, right? He could eat. Uh, he wasn't just a ghost or a spirit. He was, uh, had a physical body. And likewise, we will as well. We are not going to spend eternity floating around as um, sort of, uh, you know, in some ethereal place as sort of misty clouds and vapors uh, in some weird spirit form. The final reality, the final resurrection is a physical resurrection of our bodies. It will be uh, an imperishable body, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15, um, but it will be a physical body. Our spirits and our bodies will be, uh, will be reunited in an imperishable body. The curse of sin that condemns us now and that will lead it to our death will be completely and finally overturned. Death will be no more, which again, 1 Corinthians 15 says, at that time, that's when death will be done away with. And that's when he quotes the Old Testament, death wears your sting, kind of taunting death as being a bee without a stinger. So we will be raised imperishable. Death will be done away with. And this is to provide us with hope. Hope as we mourn even the loss of believers to death. And so the reality of the resurrection changes how we mourn. Secondly, when believers die, take comfort in the reality that no believer will miss out on the resurrection. No believer will miss out on the resurrection. Let's read verse 15 to 17. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air." In these verses, Paul describes now more of the how, how the resurrection is going to play out. And this how is, again, serving the purpose of of helping us mourn well, to mourn in hope, knowing a little of how this is going to play out. So that's why he's, he's giving this to the Thessalonians, and this is why it's there for us. And as Paul explains this, He's demonstrating that nobody who is in Christ is going to miss out on Christ's coming. Rather, all will be resurrected. So let's just walk through these verses. Um, He says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. By a word from the Lord. So Paul is is saying, he says he is basing his teaching on a word from the Lord Jesus. So then the obvious question is, what word of the Lord Jesus? Is that where did he find that? Is that in the Bible or was that uh, somewhere else? Well, Jesus doesn't say these exact words anywhere in the Bible that we have recorded. Um, so it's possible that Paul received this as a special revelation from Christ. We know that Paul did receive uh, revelation directly from Jesus, and so that's certainly a possibility. However, I would say there are important similarities between what Paul says here and what Jesus said in Matthew 24. Matthew 24, 29 to 41. Um, so there's similarities here in, in, in 1 Thessalonians 4 and then also what we'll see next week in chapter 5 and what we see in Matthew 24. So 
For example, Matthew 24, you see angels gathering the elect. And here in verse 16, we have the voice of an archangel. Matthew 24, you have a loud trumpet call. Here we have a trumpet. In Matthew 24, Jesus descends on the clouds of heaven. And here believers are caught up in the clouds with the Lord. And in Matthew 24, Jesus also compares his coming to that of, uh, he says it's like being a thief, like, like the return of a thief. And he also exhorts his disciples to therefore stay awake. And those are two things, the thief in the night, staying awake, staying sober. Those are two things that Paul is going to uh, expand on next, or talk about next uh, in chapter 5, which we'll get to next week. So I think Paul has the teaching of Matthew 24 in mind and that they speak of the same events. So he goes on to say, We who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So here Paul addresses now the concern about the dead in Christ. Are they going to miss out? What happens to them? And Paul is clear, no, they will not miss out. In fact, those who are left alive will actually be raised after them. So there's even, it would seem to possibly suggest that the dead in Christ will have even an honored place uh, at his return. And then again in verse 16, he says, The dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. And so nobody's going to miss out when Christ returns. When he comes, believers, all who are in Christ, those who die before that day, uh, and those who are left, uh, will be raised. Those who die beforehand, uh, the Bible teaches that uh, the Spirit will go to be with the Lord Jesus. Um, Paul talks about that, how uh, to be away from the body is to be with the Lord. And then at the final resurrection, their bodies will be raised, their spirit and body will be united in a resurrected body. Then those left alive, uh, verse 17, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And as we read earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, we know that when that happens, there's going to be a change. So for those who are left alive when the Lord returns, they'll be caught up together with them and they will be changed. Uh, They too will have renewed bodies, uh, imperishable bodies at at that time. So again, in this way, all in Christ will participate in the return of Christ. And this is to be our comfort, our comfort in death. I want to say a word about the picture that's painted here for us. Uh, In verse 15, Paul talks about the coming of Christ. That word for coming was commonly used to refer to the official visit of an important dignitary, such as the emperor, who would arrive. That's um, not just an ordinary word for coming. It's talking about an arrival of an important dignitary. That's commonly how it was used. And so what would happen then, as this dignitary would approach a city, is as as they got close, the people from that city would go out to meet the dignitary outside of the city. And the word in verse 17, where it talks about us meeting the Lord in the air, uh, was also a a term that was used, uh, a technical term that's used commonly to to refer to this idea of the people of the city going out to meet the dignitary. 
And so then what would happen is they would go out, they would meet this person, there would be uh, fanfare, there would be pomp, and they would escort this important person into the city. And you, Jesus' triumphal entry is, uh, is kind of a mock on this as well. Uh, it's a kind of a very humbled version of it, right? He's met outside, he's escorted to uh, praise. And so here in 1 Thessalonians, Paul seems to paint this picture. You have the common language of such an event, uh, the Lord is coming and people are meeting him in the air, presumably, I would say, to escort him to the earth. And of course, there is also much uh, pomp or glory described in this. So verse 16, there's a cry of command. It's not explained who gives this command, but it's likely uh, God himself giving a thunderous command for the dead to be raised. It's quite a thought. We also have here the voice of an archangel. Paul doesn't expand on this, but again, from places like Matthew 24, we know that angels play a, an important role uh, in the gathering of God's elect, and this is likely part of that. It's also possible, I would say, that this cry of command is, is from the archangel as well, for the dead to be raised. And then there is the sound of a trumpet blast here. Not just a musical instrument playing, but a blast, a military blast announcing the return of the king, the day of the Lord. So again, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 52, which we read in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and shall, we shall be changed. So that's, I think, the picture that, that, that Paul is painting for us. And so... Uh, some would see in these verses a, uh, a secret rapture. That is that the Lord will descend uh, kind of partway to the earth, right? And, and then uh, believers will meet him in the air. Uh, so everything we just read will happen. But then they would argue uh, that he will then return with his people to heaven. And then the tribulation, seven-year tribulation period will uh, begin. And then at the end of that period, Christ will return uh, visibly and then uh, he'll slay the Antichrist, bind uh, the, the Satan, and the thousand-year millennium will begin at that, at that time. Um, but again, I, I just I don't see that here. I think the picture is not of a quiet event, but is one of a visible and triumphant return of the Lord of Lords. And it's a compliment. It certainly appears to be a compliment to what we find in Matthew 24 and in 1 Corinthians 15. So I think the picture is the, this dignitary, the Lord of Lords, is returning, and his people are going out to greet him and then descending to the earth. Now, Paul here doesn't give details about what happens after this. In chapter 5, he's going to back up and talk about um, the timing of Christ's coming. Um, so we're left to try to piece together what happens at the conclusion of, of chapter 4 in terms of the timeline if we think of the end times. So we meet the Lord in the air. He says, so we will always be with the Lord. We'll talk more about that in a, in a second. Um, but he doesn't tell us then in detail what happens next. Is there judgment right away? Do they, you know, uh, as some would argue, go back up to heaven? Uh, is there a, a still an earthly millennium of some kind? He doesn't get into all that right here. And we're left then to piece it together from the rest of Scripture. And I do think that Revelation 20 
teaches an earthly millennial reign of Christ that commences upon his descent to earth after these events described. I think that's what Revelation 20 teaches. And again, we, we need to remember here, uh, at least in 1 Thessalonians 4, that Paul's motivations are pastoral. What he's trying to do is help them mourn well the loss of their loved ones by clarifying some of their misunderstanding. And what is certain from this text, the Lord is returning and there will be a resurrection that those who've died in Christ will return and will be raised first. Then we who are left will meet them in the air. And as we'll see in a second, we'll forever be with the Lord. And so when believing loved ones die, we are to be confident they will be raised. Nobody will miss out on this if they are in Christ. There will be a drawing to himself by Christ of all of his elect, all of his blood-bought sheep throughout all of the ages. There's going to be a completion of the saving work he begun in his people as they receive resurrected bodies. And so we're to be comforted in our grieving. No believer will miss out on this. Finally, when believers die, be comforted in the reality that all believers will spend eternity with the victorious Lord. All believers will forever be with the Lord. That's how Paul concludes this section. After describing Christ's return, he says in the second half, or the end of 17, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And so he says, in this way, we will all always be with the Lord. There are many things we don't know about the new heavens and the new earth, uh, the eternal state, if you will. Uh, there's lots we don't know about it. Revelation 21 pictures a, a new heavens and new earth descending. And as John, the apostle John, wrote that, he says in yeah, chapter 21 of Revelation, verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And so in the new heavens and new earth, the eternal final state, we will forever dwell with our God. This is the great beauty of how this all ends, is we will forever be with God. The beauty of heaven is not simply that we'll just get everything we always wanted. It's that we will dwell with God. There won't be a separation. There won't be a gap. We will not deal with sin any longer. Death will be no more. The mourning will be gone, and we will be with God. The curse of sin completely done away with. Death destroyed. No more struggle with your flesh. The amazing plan of redemption will be complete. And the king will dwell with his redeemed people forever. And this, this is worthy of our consideration, of thinking about, of dwelling on forever. This is one of the things that makes it so foolish to live life without regard for Christ. 
Because forever is, of, of course, a long time, we might say. And so compare that to a 90-year life. If we live 90 years here, we'd probably say that's pretty good. That's a, you know, he had a full life. She had a full life. She lives 90 years old. But compare that to forever. Just try to compare that to forever for a moment. And that's a, a blip. James says in 4.14, he's dealing with arrogant people. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Author, the author of Ecclesiastes says, Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. The Bible's testimony over and over is that it's foolish and short-sighted to live as though this life is all there is, to focus only on the here and now. To live part of what it means to live by faith is living in faith that Christ is returning. That there will be a resurrection of the dead. That we who are in Christ will forever be with the Lord. And so that changes, ought to change, then how we view our lives now and how we order our lives now and the things that really matter to us now. And Paul here, again, doesn't discuss the fate of those who are outside of Christ, but the Bible's not silent on that. As we just read, Ecclesiastes 11.9, as I just said, um, God will judge people. Right? Our sins demand it. God's holiness demand it. Again, Revelation 21, when it talks about the new heavens and new earth coming, it tells us what happens to sinners, those who are outside of Christ on that day. It says, the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars... Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Our lives are like a mist. But God is holy. He's perfect. He is light. There's no stain in Him or on His character. And so He must and will judge sin. But ju the Lord is also kind. He is also gracious. He also shows mercy. And so He sent His Son. He sent Jesus to come to earth as truly God and truly man, to die on the cross for rebellious people such as us, for liars, murderers, sexually immoral, idolaters, those who hate other people. Jesus came, died for sinners, rose again from the dead three days later. He ascended to the right hand of the Father where he currently is and reigns and intercedes for his people. And God the Father calls all men everywhere to repent of their sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ to be forgiven of their sin. And for those who do that, who repent, place their faith in Jesus Christ, they are made to be in Christ. They are united to Christ by faith. Christ takes their sin and pays for it on the cross, and the sinner then gets Christ's perfect righteousness and all the benefits of salvation, which includes the resurrection on the last day when he returns. And so we're called to repent and trust in him. And if we do, and we are in Christ, we have great hope. And this is why we mourn 
the death of believers in a particular way. This is why this should help us as we mourn the death of other Christians. It's not the end. Death is not the final say for those who are in Christ. When believers die, mourn with the understanding that they will be raised and will dwell forever with the Lord. Take comfort in that. I talked this week with my friend Matt, whose dad, mom and dad both died, whose dad's funeral we were at. I talked with him this last week. It's been six months since his dad's funeral. And he explained to me, I didn't ask for it, he just explained to me how much sweeter and more real the truths of the gospel have been as a result of burying his mom and dad, who were faithful believers. And he talked about how comforting that has been in his grief and how that has helped him in his grief. And he just sort of said, I don't know how people do it who don't have that hope. I don't know how you'd handle that. Verse 18 of our passage says, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. These words about the end, about the final resurrection, are there for our encouragement. It's there to help us in our mourning. So when death visits us, when a brother or a sister in Christ dies, may we return to these words and find comfort. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your word. Thank you that you have not left us in darkness. Thank you that you've given us the truths of Scripture. And God, we're thankful that you are a God who shows mercy and compassion. We're grateful that you don't, you didn't just condemn every single person to death, but you sent a rescue mission to rescue sinners. And our only hope, we confess to you now, our only hope is that Jesus Christ died to save sinners. That's our only hope of standing before you, a righteous and holy God. And Father, what a day it will be when we dwell with you for all eternity without a veil between us, without any remnant of sin, but being completely whole. I pray that that would encourage and excite us, your people. And I pray that, God, when when we face death of brothers and sisters, that we would remember this and grieve well. Lord, for those here who, who have grieved or are grieving the loss of family members, people they love who've died and who knew you, I pray that this would comfort them. I pray that you would Give us eyes of faith to live in light of that last day. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.